Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the city of Hamilton and the Waterfront Trust won in the lawsuit with the owners of Sarcoa. Provincial and territorial ministers are meeting to discuss internal trade, and the Ontario government is changing its standards surrounding disability and social assistance. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The city of Hamilton and the Waterfront Trust uh, apparently have won, uh, well, the first round, I guess, of an ongoing clash with the former owners of Sarcoa Restaurant that was down, of course, on the waterfront. Uh, the Superior Court dismissed the owner's motion to uh, slap a certificate of pending litigation, which essentially would have stopped the sale of the building. Uh, we'll get into that sale aspect in just a couple of seconds. I want to bring Jason Farr into the conversation. Of course, he is the city councilor for that area, for Ward 2, and also the chair of the uh, Waterfront Trust. Councilor Farr, thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Good morning, Bill. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about, first of all, the court decision yesterday. Uh, it sounds like it's a win for the city here, Jay. Uh, the city and the Waterfront Trust. Yeah. As you know, the plaintiff, Sarko, is going after uh, both, and this has been a long-time uh, issue that you've been covering well. And, uh, yeah, so, so as far as uh, the first judgment that we hear publicly, it's uh, gone very well in our favor. So just to paraphrase this, essentially what uh, Justice Perioski was saying is that you can go ahead and do whatever you need here. In other words, they can't block anything at this stage. Yeah, and essentially that's what the CPL, the Certificate of Pending Litigation, was uh, uh, was trying to prevent us from doing anything, whether and you set off the top a, a sale or any other uh, use as it may be related to uh, the ongoing uh, multi-million dollar redevelopment of, of Pier 8, uh, where we know we now have a proponent in Waterfront Shores. And so uh, with uh, many uh, decisions amongst this decision, Justice uh, Parabeski has said that uh, it would not be equitable to do so, to grant this motion, the CPL motion. And accordingly, quote, the motion is dismissed, end quote. Was this uh, pending litigation, which has been settled now, uh, was this holding things up down there? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, we expected a decision... Um, you know, in fairly short order. It took a, a little bit of time for the justice, but, you know, having sat through this particular CPL motion, which is apart from the other uh, lawsuit, the greater lawsuit, which we expect will be hopeful to uh, finally get to the courts and uh, hopefully finally be vindicated from in May of 2019. Uh, it took some time, but uh, having sat through the courts and been part of the courts as the uh, chair with the Waterfront Trust, uh, with our legal team and with our executive director, Werner Plutzel, and other board members, I could clearly see that the courts are inundated right now with uh, a plethora of cases. And so it did take a bit of time, but uh, the one thing's for certain, this won't hold up anything we may do with Sarcoa or the, uh, sorry, the former Discovery Center, now the Waterfront Trust Center, where Sarcoa was located and the lands adjacent. Yeah, we, I, I wouldn't even want to begin to speculate on what might happen with the lawsuit. Uh, we, as you just mentioned, it's going to probably uh, go to court sometime next spring. Uh, but there was an interesting element in uh, Justice Periofsky's uh, decision here in, in the comments of, where he uh, suggests that uh, he acknowledges, actually, that there is evidence that the owners invested $4 million in the business, which is really kind of the crux of what uh, the former owners were saying, is that, look, they were left holding the bag here with, and could be looking for compensation. So I, I wouldn't want to speculate one way or another which way this lawsuit may go. And, and as you'll appreciate, I'd be wise not to speculate myself. All I can say is, generally in speaking on behalf, mostly I should suggest to Bill, I should have said this off the top, I speak as the chair of the Waterfront Trust and don't necessarily wear my counselor's hat. 
uh, given that, uh, you know, uh, one of the defendants is the city of Hamilton. But, you know, there's, there's, there's a long uh, way to go, and, and we still feel very, very confident. I can say that generally. And, yeah, to speculate and, and uh, you know, uh, point to anything in any great detail at this point, all I'll say is that uh, this can be seen, I, I believe, as an indication that we're at the very least well-prepared uh, as we uh, move forward. And, uh, you know, we felt very confident, as we shared with you, I think, uh, some months ago going into this particular motion, the CPL, uh, that uh, it would be dismissed. And so we were pleased to see that uh, Justice uh, Paravosky uh, felt the same. Have there been any discussions, I know you can't get into specifics, but any discussions between the city, the Waterfront Trust, and the former owners about trying to settle this thing? Yeah, I can't, I can't unfortunately get into too uh, much uh, detail as it relates to the, you know, ongoing mass. Well, has there been any, con- the, has there been any contact at all? Uh, you know, we, I, I can't really discuss, uh, you know, there, there's uh, many variables, many moving parts, and I want to be very, very careful as it relates to strategy. If, if uh, the plaintiff, and Sokoa in this case, uh, decides to be consistent with what they've been doing in the media uh, since uh, putting this, you know, $15 million lawsuit on the waterfront trust in the city of Hamilton and discuss their strategies, they may very well uh, and are more than welcome to do that. But I have to, I'm very, unfortunately, Bill, usually I I let loose with you, but on, in this case, I have to be very, very careful. Well, this is going to be lawyers talking to lawyers anyway, if it were happening. It's very much so. All right, let's let's talk about the future here now, Jay. Uh, with this now done and with this decision from the justice, uh, what's going to happen to this property? Well, you'll recall, uh, you know, last this term of council, it's still this term of council, but it was about a year ago. Uh, council debated uh, uh, uses and what we may do go what we may do with the building itself moving forward. Understanding, as most people do, Pier Eight is right there. A waterfront source has been awarded uh, as the successful proponent the opportunity to uh, participate in a multi-million dollar uh, mixed-use development, lots of residential, there's commercial, there's also institutional as part of that. And uh, apart from that, but uh, just adjacent to it, are these lands. In fact, part of the parking lot that we used for the Discovery Center does make up part of the now awarded waterfront shores lands. But the building itself, we said as a council... Let's go uh, take a look at whether or not the winning proponent has any interest in um, in acquiring that uh, piece of property, whether it is to straight out purchase or operate that property. And um, we're in the process right now of those discussions with Waterfront Shores, whether or not they're interested in incorporating it in the larger picture. So is it fair to say then that this is on the auction block right now? Well, you know, it may be uh, what we can uh, assure the public, and I've, I held a public meeting, and I think you and I spoke afterwards, yeah. about 100 people attended at the very site, and, and I basically held a meeting and said, hey, if we were to have a third-party person uh, take this building over, whether they purchase it or operate it or it's a long-term lease, whatever the machination, number one, it has to go back to council. Whatever we come up with here, council still has to make a decision on the future of how uh, the building, the beautiful building that is the former Discovery Center, uh, will uh, be used uh, in the future. And then we spent a lot of the time talking about what uses you see as important for that building. It is a great building, and it's a great location, and it's going to be part of a very exciting new community. And when we look at those uses in that room, and what I've been talking about publicly with you and others, is institutional uses, so public good uses. 
how the public can still access the building and what good public uses uh, we can get from that. And, and those hundred people or so that attended came up with some very, very good ideas, everything from uh, libraries to bird sanctuaries to uh, different mixed uh, types of uses, so multi-purpose type facility. It's a very large facility. And uh, th- those are the kinds of things we're looking at, and those are the kinds of things, those ideas uh, 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 will be part of the discussion as it uh, moves forward with Waterfront Shores on what, whether, what determinations they make and whether or not they want to be part of that. All right, so I, I'm getting from what you're saying here that, first of all, you want to keep the building because there was some speculation that uh, that if, in fact, you got rid of the property, in other words, sold it to somebody, that they may want to demolish the building and make part of some other kind of development or, as you mentioned, uh, part of the uh, the Waterfront Shores development. So the, the goal here that you seem to be indicating here is that you want that building to stay the where, where it is. I and many, many others, I can definitively share with you, Bill, that was never my intention. It's It's, you know, it's a fairly new building, but... In, in a lot of people's minds, including my own, it's a historic piece of property. It's an uh, architectural gem, and there's absolutely no reason to demolish it. But uh, what uses can come of it are, are more are the prevailing discussion. All right, but there was some concern at that meeting, as we and I, you and I talked about before, about selling that. There, there seemed to be, I think, from the people I talked to, from the public that went, attended that meeting, Jay, uh, the consensus yeah. was they want the city to hold on to this. They don't want it to sell. Yeah, absolutely. Those who participated in that meeting uh, were loud and clear. I don't think there were too many people that uh, spoke uh, to straight out just sell it. Uh, others felt it should remain in city hands. And, of course, you know, that's part of this conversation. And, and the reality is, Bill, we have uh, obviously never contemplated in any 10-year capital plan or operating plan uh, the, the former Discovery Center uh, in, in our annual budgeting. So, that's when council ultimately, and this will go back to council, that's the big point here, uh, has to make a decision. There's going to be obviously, uh, you know, budgetary uh, and capital plan uh, implications. That said, I mean, we have Eastwood Park and Arena just a block and a half down the road that we're, we are part of, uh, that is part of a 10-year capital plan that it has uh, and continues to have public engagement uh, uh, reflecting around a redevelopment there. And we also have in our 10-year capital plan an expansion of the Bonetto Recreation Center. So those are the kinds of conversations and elements that we need to keep in mind as we discuss a new possible plan if, we retain, if the city retains the Discovery Center and, 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 and brings in some institutional use or uses. All right, but you haven't at this point anyway made a determination whether or not you're going to keep this and, and do something with it or no. sell this. No. That, no, that, has, to be, that has to be step one, doesn't it? That'll all have to come back to council. What we had, did do, and in short, and to put it as simply as possible, is moved a motion that said go talk to Waterfront Shores and see what they think of this building. And then come back to us, and that's we're waiting for staff to come back to us. And I'm hopeful that would happen in the first quarter of 2019, though. Okay, but does the city policy, purchase policy, not suggest that if you're going to sell this, you can't sole source it, that you'd have to put this out on open market and take tenders? I, yeah, real estate's a different sort of uh, egg uh, in terms of the Municipal Act. We could uh, sole source. Uh, we have that right through real estate. That's my understanding. I mean, that would be part of, uh, of uh, the report back, but certainly having moved the motion already to talk to a loan proponent, uh, tells us that we were within our rights to do that. 
Yeah, because I'm I'm trying to I, maybe I'm conflating two different policies here, but I was always under the impression that uh, that you can't sole source in situations like that. That there may be other people that might be interested in that property if, in fact, the city has expressed an interest that they want to make it. Well, you'd have to declare it a surplus, would you not? Uh, if we were to go that route, and even if we did sole source uh, and and offered it solely to the proponent, what I can tell you right now, Bill, we have a motion that says speak to one. Uh, proponent, and it's the pr- proponent that is immediately adjacent to Discovery. It's part and parcel of the Pier 8, Pier 7 work that we're doing. And that motion was passed. Uh, I, you know, that sort of real estate type motion is obviously going to be vetted by both our director of real estate and legal. And so, uh, you know, while I don't have it in front of me, I can tell you that the, the fact, the mere fact that it was passed, Bill, uh, tells us that we're within, you know, our rights in this particular case to to look at a loan proponent, given the proponent's proximity and investment in the area. All right, so what's your time frame for this? I would imagine you want to get this done sooner than later, then. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of people in the community, too, that would like to put this to bed. Certainly, Justice uh, Parabeski's uh, decision uh, now doesn't leave anything in limbo as it relates to what we do in the future, uh, near or far, uh, as it relates to this particular parcel. So that's, you know, that's a major hurdle in his decision. And again, that decision, uh, not granting the CPL motion, the plaintiff looking for us to not do anything with it until the court case is heard. Justice said, no, 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 you can't do that. You can still have your court case in May or April of uh, 2019, but you're not going to hold up uh, progress down down on the harbor. All right, you have had public meetings about this particular property. Uh, this has been yeah. very contentious, obviously. Now that council is going to have to make a decision on this, as you said, just said, sooner than later, uh, are you on planning or anticipating that you're going to have more public meetings to give the, the people in that neighborhood, or any interested party for that matter, some input into what you, they might like to see happen here? Well, when uh, council ultimately makes this decision, it's a public meeting, and obviously I've held uh, my own public meeting. There was also a good uh, uh, public meeting prior to the one that I held myself at uh, 294 James. Uh, at the Evergreen Engagement Center, where our agenda was uh, sort of flipped around so we could focus specifically in the time needed on this particular issue. So we've definitely had a, a good number of discussions publicly already. And ultimately, like we say, this issue is going to come back to council. That, too, is a public meeting, and the public is obviously always more than welcome to participate in the form of delegation or written submission. Jay, thanks for the update on this. Really appreciate this. I know an awful lot of people are very, very uh, concerned about uh, what's going to be happening with that property. It looks like uh, finally it's starting to come into focus. Uh, we'll stay in touch. Thanks again. Thank you, Bill. That's uh, Ward 2 Councilor Jason Farr. Uh, we'd like to get some input from the uh, the former owners of uh, Sarkoa, too. Uh, Mr. Destro and Faiza, of course, they've been on the program. We've talked with them in the past about this, but uh, to get their reaction and what they may want to do going forward. I just get the sense that there's a, another shoe that may drop here. Uh, not necessarily that's going to stop this thing, but, uh, well, there's still a lot of things up in the air right now when it comes to the lawsuit and uh, what's going to happen with that property. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've had a lot of talk in the last couple of years, obviously, about international trade deals, uh, the NAFTA negotiations, uh, of course, uh, TPP, on and on it goes. We haven't had a whole lot of conversation about interprovincial trade, and that's certainly something that has to happen. Uh, in the economic update uh, last week, uh, the provincial economic update, uh, Finance Minister Vic Fidelli talked about that. And uh, this week, when the feds did their update, uh, Bill Morneau also touched on this. Well, to that end, there is a meeting taking place now between provincial and territorial ministers to discuss internal trade. 
issues come to the forefront, obviously, because of the uh, talk that's been going on. And you'd like to think some stuff is going to happen and there's going to be some movement on this. Joining us to talk about this is Brian Kelsey, who is the Vice President of Policy at the uh, Toronto Board of Trade. Brian, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. My pleasure. Listen, there's been a lot of talk about this. A lot of people express concern about this for years now, and not a whole lot of movement on this. Are you hopeful that maybe something's going to happen now because the finance ministers are talking about it? Well, and and to, to put it in context, I worked at Queen's Park uh, 20 years ago, and the briefing notes that I would have seen then are basically the same as the briefing notes that, that the new government would have seen when they came into office now. There's been a lot of institutional and chronic stubbornness across Canada amongst provincial governments around internal trade issues. We've got more open trade in many in many sectors with the United States than we do with, with people and workers and customers in our own country. But we at the Board of Trade believe that uh, <clears throat> you know we, we may be closer to momentum on this uh, than ever before. And part of it is is that you don't only have this minister's meeting that's happening today, but we know that uh, uh, that the rare first minister's meeting that's supposed to happen in the uh, end of the first week of December that the Prime Minister is chairing, that uh, the signals are that internal trade is going to be on the agenda there as well. So uh, people want to win on this. Uh, I think the time is, is right, and we're, we're making a suggestion today to try and, and create an easy win so that if, if, if premiers need something to grab onto to say, look, we're starting to get used to the idea of making uh, getting agreements on this issue, that they can build up some momentum. I was surprised years ago. I was talking to an owner of one of the wineries down in Niagara, and, and that's exactly what he told me. I said, where's your biggest market, assuming it was going to be here? And he says, it's the northeastern United States. It's, it's cheaper for me to send my stuff there than it is to go across the border into another province. I thought, this is ridiculous. What, what's been holding it up? I mean, you've got some history with this file then, Brian. What's been holding it up over the years? Well, it's, it's, it's not just cheaper. It's, it's you know, in, in many cases, uh, what we're talking about here is, is, you know, illegal, that what we're proposing as, as a so-called icebreaker deal is that all provinces agree to allow free e-commerce uh, between any beverage alcohol producer in any of their provinces and any customer. <clears throat> and so if I wanted to... Uh, order a case of BC wine as an ex-British Columbian or vice versa, that uh, people could do that and sample product products across the country. And right now, that's only, that kind of trade is only across the borders, only legal in three provinces, BC, Manitoba, and Nova Scotia. Um, and if on Ontario... A uh, wine producer wanted to start a wine club, which is a common way of marketing your product. Uh, it's illegal for you to be a member of that club outside of Ontario. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not just the cost, but the, the biggest barrier here in Ontario to us saying yes is uh, the LCBO and the tax and revenue model that... Uh, Provinces like Ontario are worried about this kind of trade because they might lose a few million here and there if if taxes don't get charged uh, to the full level or they're not getting the retail margin from sales and whatnot. And our answer to that is uh, don't be short-sighted, don't be ridiculous. The amount of tax revenue you'll, you'll make by having stronger wineries and craft breweries and stronger uh, craft distiller uh, 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 firms is going to more than make up for whatever the LCBO loses from a few cases of wine crossing the border. I mean, because if countries took that same attitude that the provinces have been doing for the last few years, I mean, there'd be no such thing as, as international trade deals. I mean, that, that's, that's the ultimate of protectionism. And how do you, build, how do you tear those barriers down? Well, I, I mean, one of the reasons why we believe now uh, is a time when we may get some momentum is that premiers across the country are going to have a hard time explaining this to their own constituents, that we all know that everybody's done a great job uh, across the country of telling our friends in the United States that free trade's good for both sides, 
and that uh, the competition is good for both sides and great for consumers as well. For those same premiers to sit, uh, you know, <clears throat> after we've just concluded a new trade deal with the states and uh, come home and say, well, no, you know, free trade doesn't work if you're a Canadian competing with a Canadian or a Canadian buying a Canadian product. Uh, it, it gets harder to make that kind of argument in that kind of uh, political environment. So with that attitude, that and, and you mentioned Ontario has been one of the problems here because of the economy. They're the ones that kind of said, yeah, thanks, but no thanks over the years anyway. Uh, how do you how do you sell them on this? Because by nature, these things are supposed to be give and take, right, Brian? Well, right. And, and so, uh, I mean, this is why we've proposed this, this notion of an icebreaker deal starting on uh, e-commerce with, with beverage alcohol. It's for a couple of reasons. And that is, first, um, you know, there's not that much give for people to say yes to this. Uh, and, and there's a lot of potential take in that uh, pretty much every region across the country has some kind of, of uh, um, you know, niche beverage alcohol industry that can see some benefit from this. So this should be something where it would be easy to find common ground. And saying yes to it is common sense, given how much uh, e-commerce is already, uh, you know, taking place uh, across borders on so many other products that are similar to alcohol. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's something where um, if if... We believe that if, if, if premiers start getting used to agreeing, uh, there's going to be momentum because where you start to deal with more complex issues like uh, trade certification and things like that, where American states, for example, uh, they deal with this problem by just having mutual recognition. And on a number of issues like that, if Ontario agrees that Quebec's rules are, you know, we're going to respect their rules for Quebec and they're going to respect our rules for here. And if somebody crosses the border, they've got a, you know, if they're licensed in Quebec, they're licensed here. We're going to start to get into an environment where provinces can keep their own jurisdiction, but there's also, um, you know, openness to the fact that, that we're not we're not trading with the Wild West when we're trading with, with Quebec or Alberta or some other province. Is there is there legislation that's in the way here? I mean, because I know a lot of us were hoping... Uh, with the the famous New Brunswick uh, beer purchase uh, court, court that went to the Supreme Court, that maybe the court would have ruled in favor of the of the well yeah. the consumer in that particular case. That wasn't the situation. We thought this is never going to happen. Well, yeah, the, the 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 Como case that that what the court said was that um, you know in, internal trade barriers that are there just to prevent trade are illegal. But if you have another excuse, basically, if if, if you can find. Uh, any public policy excuse to set up an internal ter- trade barrier, what in international trade would be called a non-tariff barrier, uh, you can get away with it. And so ultimately the solution here has to be political, and it has to be a matter of, um, you know, premiers and premiers like Doug Ford. I mean, certainly his, his rhetoric on this issue so far has been good, and, and we're hoping for, for action and cooperation with other provinces, uh, that if premiers actually back up uh, the rhetoric they've been talking about internationally and say, we have to solve this problem by coming to an agreement amongst ourselves that that trade between Canadians is a good thing. Uh, It's going to take time because depending on the industry, I mean, you've got uh, with provincial liquor rules, everybody's got their own uh, distinct legislation. So that's all got to be amended. But making the agreement to start amending it is the first step, and we haven't got there yet, so let's get there. Maybe the most elementary question here, how does the industry feel about this? I mean, because the, I, I'm, in my opinion, Brian, this is, couldn't come at a better time because the wine industry, uh, well, distillery and, and craft breweries, I mean, you know, I don't think the industry's ever been better than it has been in the last couple of years. 
Absolutely, it's 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 a quality product that's that's uh, doing. The reason why Ontario wines do well in the United States is not just because we make it hard for Ontario to sell those wines nationally, but also because it's a great a great product that you know pretty much every I've lived in pretty much every region of the country. Everybody's got something that's that's worth trying, worth selling, worth worth uh, distilling and producing. And um, yeah, I mean we've we've heard. Uh, we made some calls before we sent out this release, obviously, to, to our, our friends and allies in, in related industries. Um, many of them were lobbying for something like this before. Uh, you know, there, there's, there's openness to, to the idea that it can be done. And if there has to be a few regulatory tweaks that, that make it take six months to get there, by all means. But everybody, uh, at a minimum, is certainly willing to... to um, you know, to send product across the country on an e-commerce basis, and if that's the first baby step we need to take to do something more, um, the, the support is there uh, uh, through through several sectors of this industry across the country. I mean, I, I was just on the phone with British Columbia, and they were, you know, ecstatic at the notion that Ontarians were even talking about this. So, well, with that kind of support, then it seems the industry is is obviously open to this idea too. Was there anybody lobbying the government to not do this? Well, I can tell you because I did work at Queen's Park on this file that you know the number one lobbyist against interprovincial open interprovincial trade in the beverage alcohol sector is unfortunately the Liquor Control Board of Ontario, which you know enjoys uh, you know a dwindling but nevertheless strong you know de facto uh, retail duopoly or monopoly, however you want to look at it, and <clears throat> you know it's it's in the LCBO's institutional interest to. Uh, control as much of the beverage alcohol trade as possible, not just because of its social responsibility mandate, but also because, um, you know, their approach is, is a monopoly approach of, uh, you know, they can charge the retail markup they want, they can uh, display the products they want, uh, they can market them any way they want, and so forth. And our response to the LCBO on that is, look, that may be the case for you, but it's in the province's interest to have strong industries that are producing product and exporting that product. And the tax revenue we'll get and the jobs we'll create by allowing for this level of interprovincial trade will more than outweigh, um, you know, any hypothetical losses uh, the, the provincial purse might take uh, from a slight uh, and, frankly, very marginal change in, in how we're actually uh, uh, selling uh, alcohol across borders. Getting into the realm of, of speculation, I guess, but if Ontario wants to, to as you say, tweak some of the, uh, the the policies that they have to do here to make this more open, is 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 a, a refurb of the, uh, the LCBO part of that plan? Well, it, it, it certainly could be, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, this is this is part of what's what's created internal trade problems in, in so many cases is that, uh, you know, everybody focuses on trying to solve 10 problems as, at once when it should be possible to incrementally open up these markets. I, I prefer we just blow them open, but if it, if, if it has to be done incrementally, it's certainly possible to do that as a way of dealing with, you know, industry anxieties in different provinces or uh, concerns about uh, revenue shifts or whatever. So we can go both ways on this. I, I mean, I think, I, I think to me, part of what's so frustrating about the alcohol debate in particular, as opposed to issues like, you know, construction trade certification or government procurement on internal trade, is that, you know, we need to stop thinking of the LCBO and its retail sales as the only thing we care about in Ontario in terms of what the benefits are to, to taxpayers and, and, and to the provincial economy. Obviously, having successful, you know, a couple hundred successful uh, wineries, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, 
exporting wine and, and growing wine and bringing tourists in to, to, to see our beautiful wineries is a huge win for us. And we need to look at every policy, not just from the standpoint of, of how does this help the LCBO as our, our big retailer, but how does this, this help the rest of the economy through those other benefits? And if we can get benefits by, by helping our producers, um, that should be front of mind just as often as the LCBO's, uh, you know, frankly, short-term interest of what their bottom line looks like this week. Well, because as you know, Brian, I mean, there have been parallel discussions for years now here in Ontario about what to do with the LCBO and discussions about, you know, trying to tear down some of these trade barriers. I'm just wondering, right. I guess it's a political decision ultimately, but whether or not they're going to conflate those two discussions and, and figure that, well, one can help solve the other. Right. And, and yeah, I mean, for, for those who are looking at this from the, the standpoint of the impact on the LCBO, as opposed to just building momentum for interprovincial trade, by all means, I mean, what we found as Canadians is the more we trade, uh, the better it is for us. And there are winners and losers, but we've had more winners than losers. And that's, that's the point of the exercise. And that certainly applies to to how we're marketing products, uh, you know, whether it's agricultural products or um, you know, uh, alcohol products here in Ontario in, in terms of, you know, we're, we're, there's a grocery store a few blocks from me that's, that's selling beer and the world hasn't ended uh, and the, the, the province isn't going bankrupt because that's happening. So if we can do that uh, in our own stores uh, safely and responsibly, surely we can allow, uh, you know, some of my relatives in Manitoba to pick up the phone and order a case of, uh, you know, order a case of wine from Ontario or vice versa without believing it's going to be the end of the world either. Is Ontario the only province at this stage, Brian, that has a, a, a liquor control board like that? Uh, the other ones are all um, pro- privately owned, are they not? The, the Manitoba certainly has, has, a, has a public retail system, <coughs> um, Saskatchewan uh, as well. Um, they also have some, some off-sales there. That the, Each provincial system is a little different, which is part of what makes this file such a pain for, for negotiators to deal with, is everybody's got a slightly different regulatory model. Uh, but, you know, make no mistake, I mean, it, it, that, that other provinces have found different reasons uh, um, to say no, and New Brunswick's a great example with, with you know, the Como case yeah. took place in New Brunswick, that, that ultimately this is about uh, tax and control. Um, it may used to have been on the wine front about protectionism uh, as well in terms of Ontario not wanting con- competition from B.C. or vice versa, but the industry in, in most cases has outgrown that kind of um, complain, and it's it's mostly about governments that are used to doing a certain way, things a certain way, and collecting revenue a certain way. And if they change the model, then they might have to change their projections a little, and and so forth. And um, I, again, I, I I cannot you know emphasize just we, how simple it should be for ministers uh, today, or for the prime minister and and premiers in uh, a week and a half to say, look, this is an easy starting to point to say. There are so many other places in the Canadian consumer market where you can pick up a phone or open up uh, open up your computer and, and order something. And we're talking about doing this within our own country. Uh, this this should not be rocket science here. And 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 the the, the supposed risks to anybody's economy uh, or or social responsibility rules or anything else are are all managed already. I mean, you can you can do this within provinces, so why can't you do it across provincial borders? And, and so this is basically, I guess, what you're looking for here, almost like a, a, a test project to say, look, if we can do this with alcohol, uh, maybe we can expand that discussion to other products. 
Precisely. I mean, uh, you know, I wasn't joking on the internal trade file with, you know, there's been 20 years of, of talk and there was, um, you know, uh, uh, forget the precise date, but about a year, year and a half ago, there was a Canadian free trade agreement that was announced with great fanfare between these ministers that was really a timeline to start looking at these issues and start taking down barriers. And not a lot has happened since that. And there's there's been some agreements between individual provinces to deal with these pieces. What we really need is is momentum, frankly, and that's why we've picked this one quick win to, as a recommendation for people to start with. We need premiers to get used to the idea that you know that they can make changes to their own rules that are going to make things more competitive, but better for consumers in their own provinces without. You know, we want to see them do that, and then they're going to walk away, and the world isn't going to collapse, and then they can say, yeah, maybe I can do this with the next issue, and the next issue, and the next issue. It's a very political area in Canada in that uh, negotiating between provinces is is hard. It's time-consuming. You've got very different legal regimes between them. And uh, the biggest barrier, we believe, is just getting people to get used to the idea that it's okay to agree to be a common market here in Canada. Well, it, it just uh, serves as a reminder, I guess, about just you know how we are governed here in this country. I mean, we always like think of ourselves as a, as a national entity, as Canada, but it's really a, a series of jurisdictions that all have their own rules. I mean, same debate about healthcare as it is what we're dealing with commerce here too. And I, I guess what you're doing here today is is the first step. It has to be the first step is get a conversation going again. Yeah, and 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 I don't want people to to um, you know we're we're having fun talking about beverage alcohol, but that you know wineries are real multi-billion-dollar industries in their respective provinces. This this isn't just a you know a luxury or passing issue. And if we can solve an issue like this, um, there's other issues whether it's it's portability of skills in areas like like healthcare or construction. Uh, there's issues with shipping. There's issues with government procurement where where some estimates, I think they're high, but there are some estimates that suggest that we are hurting our own economy to the tune of $50 billion or more uh, by having the level of internal trade barriers that we do relative to other countries, uh, even if that's, you know, five times off. Ten billion more in economic activity is more than worth the effort to get these barriers down. Brian, good luck with this. Uh, it, it's great to see everybody's going to be in the same room talking about this, and uh, here's hoping that we can get this thing done. Appreciate the time today, and uh, always a pleasure. Thank you. Take care, Brian. Brian Kelsey, uh, VP of Policy at the Toronto Board of Trade. Uh, tear the barriers down. If we can do international trade deals, for heaven's sakes, can't we do provincial ones too? I'd like to think the answer is yes. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to spend some time now talking about uh, the announcement yesterday about welfare and social assistance uh, reforms. Uh, it was uh, at Queen's Park, and we knew that, uh, that obviously with the, the minister in charge, Lisa McLeod, was, uh, well, she said a 100-day waiting period. But they were supposedly getting information about what they wanted to do. Uh, and this was on the heels, of course, of the announcement they made some time ago. Uh, that they wanted to kill the basic income project, which they did. Uh, they wanted to freeze the uh, proposed increase in the uh, minimum wage. But they said, don't worry, because when we reform all the social assistance stuff, it's going to be fine. And yesterday, well, the minister had this to say. I want every dollar we spend on social assistance to do one of two things, to provide compassionate support for those who clearly cannot re-enter the workforce. And secondly, provide meaningful assistance to those who can work so they can find a job, stabilize their life, and get back on track. 
Well, if that's the state of goal, let's uh, go through what they announced yesterday and see whether or not it meets the mark. And uh, joining us on the program to talk about this is uh, Laura Katari, who is, of course, the chair of the Social Policy Working Group on the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Uh, Laura, thanks for joining us. Great you could uh, join the program today and talk to us about this. Uh, maybe start off with uh, your, an overview of what you heard from the minister yesterday. Well, it's interesting when you, well, one, hello. <laughs> it, it is interesting when you look um, at everything presented yesterday. Um, on the surface, um, it seemed incredibly positive until you start diving into some of the details. So it is a bit of a mixed bag. Um, I'm not even sure where to start here. Uh, well, let, I'll give you one, because I talked sure. about this on my commentary this morning. Um, those that, that liked what they heard yesterday were saying, well, this is great, uh, because one of the first things they did is, you know, the the monthly allowance that you're allowed to use to augment your your, your check, if in fact you do that, it's it's going to go up to 300 bucks from the current 200 And that on the surface, that, that makes your point. On the surface, that sounds great. Problem is... The, the liberal legislation that they tore up was going to make it $400. So actually the people are losing out of this deal. They're not winning. Not only are they losing with the deal um, from what we had seen previously proposed, but every dollar that they earn after that is reduced um, off their check by 75%. So 75 cents of every dollar you earn after that 300 um is taken off your check. So, and, and let's put that in context, because it used to be 50 cents. So in other words, they've they've lessened the amount of uh, money that you're allowed to, to earn to augment, and they've increased the clawback for those that might exceed that. Absolutely. So how is that helping people? I, I, I'm trying to get my head around that. Well, I don't think it actually does help people. People will end up off the system um, earning a wage that annually that is basically half of a living wage. Um, if we're looking for a poverty reduction strategy, uh, this won't be it. Well, it, it seems as if it's going to put people that are already in that cycle in deeper into that cycle, and, and, and I'm, I'm not overstating that. I know some people say, oh, come on, there you go with fear-mongering again, but they're putting less money into the system, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm baffled that they think this is actually going to help people. This is... I'm not sure who it's supposed to help, but probably not the recipient, uh, not long-term. If we want people to develop stability, we need to, um, you know, they, they speak of wraparound supports, right? We're supposed to stabilize people and, you know, help them get their legs and get back on track. But what we're doing is actually letting go of them sooner, you know, five to $6,000 sooner than we used to. And I think the other disconcerting part, and I mean, what we're talking about here is adequacy, you know, enough to live on. So it's disconcerting. They're still applying the old trope of, you know, we can't get too close to what minimum wage is or the poverty line or people won't go to work. Well, we have two decades of data of leaving people incredibly cash-strapped that shows that does not get them back to work faster. It traps them. So I'm not sure what the minister was looking at when she thought that, but we haven't seen great exit rates at $680, at $733 per month. 
the uh, the numbers are frightening, really, when you look at what's going on here. And and I guess what we have to do at some point, Laura, is, is try to connect the dots here and look at the big picture here. Because you're right, if you take a clause or, or any little part of this program in isolation, you can spin it, as, as they did yesterday, to say, hey, this is actually going to be much better for people. But let's look at the whole picture here. And you and I have talked about this in the past. Uh, what they announced yesterday has to be combined with uh, the cancellation of the basic income pilot project, the cancellation of the increase in the minimum wage that was supposed to happen this year. That's not going to happen anymore. Uh, there was supposed to be an increase in social assistance rates this year, uh, about 3%. Well, they've slashed that to 1.5%, and that's even less than the rate of inflation. Exactly. Yeah, taken in context. Now, I mean, the interesting thing about what was announced is that it's very short on details. So we heard about um, not operating in silos and that the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Housing and everyone was going to be announcing different things, but we have no idea what those things are. So to evaluate what was presented yesterday becomes a bit more difficult. Uh, We don't know if there's going to be a housing stability benefit like we recommended, like the Fed said they'd like to partner with the provinces on. Um, so it's it's hard from a financial standpoint to see how things would work better. If we start to move into supports and services, it gets a little murkier. So on one hand, um, having the municipalities, especially Hamilton, um, having more control over how the money is spent locally to provide wraparound sports is great. I, I think the city knows who's available in the city, what non-for-profits, what people are offering, and the relationships to develop um, adequate supports. That being said, if it's mental health issue and we need more mental health supports, I don't know if we're going to have those extra dollars. Well, they didn't say that. They, they, they said that uh, they were going to offer counseling. Uh, right. and, and they said they were going to encourage people to uh, to go and find work. And you know, now that they've increased uh, what they said was going to be the augmented uh, income, but at the same time, there are only so many hours in the week, and 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 this this would change with each individual file, wouldn't it, Laura? Depending on the person's circumstance. I mean, if they're on ODSP and they're working, I don't know what it is, maybe ten hours a week, uh, they may not physically be able to work more than that. So where does that leave them? Well, at the moment. Um I have no idea. I mean, the, the clip that you started with saying that, you know, people were going to live with more dignity, um, in my book, more dignity means you don't have to worry if you can do laundry or not. You don't have to worry about torn clothes because you've been on disability most of your life. Um, but I'm not sure that's going to translate into a larger monthly amount for people. Um, and the second part of that, and I'm not sure if you heard, but there's, they're looking at a new definition of disability. Yeah, let's talk about that. So they refer to the federal definition. Now, there is no official federal definition. What there is um, are two programs. One is a disability tax credit that is very difficult to qualify for. Uh, it it looks at a level of disability that your own self-care becomes difficult. The other is the 
Canada Pension Plan Disability Program, uh, and it has a much higher threshold, um, severe and prolonged, unable to um, participate in gainful employment. So when you talk about the only working 10 hours a week or less, that's the kind of people that would qualify under the new rules. Other than that, people with significant health problems will stay on Ontario Works. And for me, that is incredibly frightening to hear. Um, With the rise in mental health issues, just the number of people, uh, and people not having short-term benefits, people not qualifying for employment insurance, to have Ontario Works, as it is now, at $733, someone having their first, say, major depressive episode, having to worry about finding somewhere else to live because it's $733 and possibly their rent is more than that at the time they get ill. Oh, it probably is. Right? So what you're doing is compounding stress and trauma. You know, someone at a vulnerable point in their life is going to start to panic about their very survival at the time they're least able to do something smart about it. So it's, it really is terrifying. Um, I think it's going to leave it up to the municipality to um, come to the rescue. And I don't know if we actually have the finances to do that. We have no idea what the agreements are going to look like with the municipalities. Well, for those of us that lived through uh, the Mike Harrison years, uh, the Common Sense Revolution in the last part of the 1990s, uh, and I spent some of that time on city council, of course. I, I can tell you, you know, chapter and verse about the number of times that we simply found out from our staff, oh, by the way, here's another program that just got downloaded uh, onto the municipality and onto your property taxes. Or not not even that. Sometimes they just say, here's another program the province isn't going to fund anymore, and those people are going to be left high and dry unless we do something about it. And and, and you're, to your point, Laura, you can't say yes all the time because uh, we don't have money trees in this city. At some point, you know, the province has to accept responsibility for this, and it seems as if what they want to do is shrink the roles rather than, than, than widen the umbrella and try to help people that need help. Well, that is what it sounds like. And currently, just Ontario Works alone, we have 10,000 adults. Um, are we going to find employment for 10,000 people all at once? And the general population. It, it's a steep curve. And what is going to happen to people, their, their futures, I, I feel afraid. I, I, at the moment, um, I have no idea what exactly is going to happen. They do talk about pilot projects across the province, and it seems as if they, they want to test things. Now, the other part of concern is they'll be basing uh, what they do on outcomes, and outcomes being people finding jobs. Well, unless people are going to magically create <laughs> employment, um, it, it, it begs the question, what are people going to do, um, or the city going to do, if the employment outcomes are not good? Are they going to be penalized? Are they going to get a reduction in, you know, transfers? 
We, we have no idea. Um, but to just back up a little more, I mean, we did recommend wraparound supports. And what I find challenging, and it's not just this government, is the idea you can do either or, either adequacy or do services. And to move people ahead, we need both. But I didn't hear that discussion yesterday. No, absolutely not. And just just this idea that people with disabilities um, that are not severe and prolonged are going to have an equal opportunity in our job market as someone that doesn't have a disability, um, I think it's just fanciful. Like, there's... <laughs> I don't know where we get this idea from. Sure, there are people with disabilities that are employed. But when you look at federal stats, they're still making almost half of what the median income is for others. So I'm not sure what this plan is going to do other than lessen the OW roles. Yeah, but that's it's it's going the wrong way. I mean, the 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 people that are going to go off the rolls here, according to what they announced yesterday, are people that are going to be no longer eligible. Not you'd like to think it's at the top end of the spectrum where they're going to say, you know what, I don't need it anymore because I'm I'm gainfully employed. I'm making enough money to pay the rent and buy groceries. I'm afraid it's going to happen to the other end where they're simply going to say, sorry, you don't qualify anymore. You're on your own. Well. It is disturbing. Um, there's a there's something else that was mentioned. Um, I didn't catch it myself, but some of my colleagues did. This idea of a health spending account. Um, it is supposed to be a new way to uh, amalgamate all the different benefits, etc. But they don't state exactly which benefits will be removed, and they don't state the amount someone will have annually for their health spending account. And it's things like that I I find a bit cruel. I, I am on social media quite a bit. I tend to monitor especially the ODSP um, groups. And people are panicking. People are panicking if they'll have enough for their diabetic supplies, if they'll have enough for their prosthesis. Um, Making these kind of announcements without details um, really is injurious to people on ODSP. Well, like I say, there's not a whole lot in the way of details, and uh, I'm not so sure that I want to be optimistic about what we're going to hear in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, but I, I'm glad you had some time to talk to us about this, because I think we need to underscore exactly what's going on. And I know we're just about out of time here, but I just find it rather interesting that on the same week that they uh, just gave a tax break to the highest income bracket here in the province, they did this uh, for the people that uh, are most in need of help. And that tells you, I guess, what you need to know about this government. Laura, thanks so much for the time today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Laura Katari, of course, from the uh, Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.